thank you for listening. And hopefully you are subscribed to the Records and Rich Podcast. If you're not, go to the iTunes store. Give it a subscription. Feel free to rate it. Rate it however you like, but hopefully kindly and with as many stars as possible. And leave a comment. Would love to hear the feedback, by all means, from every kind of listener. What you're liking, what you'd like to hear more of, what maybe this has not touched on yet. And just, you never know, some of your ideas might be coming down the pike for future episodes. With this particular episode... I brought in Bomani Jones, a very well-versed music fan in general. He's known for his work on ESPN, certainly, but he's written in the past. He's written for Playboy, he's written about music, and he is very learned in a lot of different ways and with a lot of different artists. He was one of the first people I went to when I said, listen, I'm starting this music podcast, would love to have you on. Whatever you want to talk about, give me the artist, give me the topic, give me the band, we'll just run with it. And he came back and he said, I want to do David Bowie. And I said, okay, let's do David Bowie. Who, by the way, as I say uh, in the podcast, I'm not I'm not a huge Bowie fan. I don't really have a reason for it. I kind of explain why that might be. But I will say, after having done this podcast, I was pretty eager to go and start exploring more of his stuff. And I think you'll see why when you listen to it. But overall, if you're listening, hopefully... You're just a fan of the podcast. You want to give all the episodes a lesson to those people. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. But hopefully David Bowie fans have found the podcast. And and I think we touch on a lot of stuff here that Bowie fans will certainly agree with. And we might be even going into some areas that they haven't, you know, seen or heard discussed in a lot of ways regarding Bowie and his legacy. Bomani touches on a lot of things that I think ring pretty true overall. So be sure to give it a listen. You can follow Bomani on Twitter at Bomani underscore Jones. I'm, of course, at Matt Norlander. Here's this episode. Thank you so much and continue listening. He is the co-host of Highly Questionable on ESPN. He has the right time with Bomani Jones, an ESPN radio show, and of course he contributes to Around the Horn. Bomani Jones is here to talk about David Bowie, which I'm pretty pumped about because, I don't know, man, I think if people think Bomani Jones, they might think, okay, I've seen some of his hip-hop writing, I know he loves Outkast, he stands up for Prince... Do people really associate you with being a big Bowie fan? Is this something that you've always been, or have you kind of come around to that train in recent years? I think I probably came around to it probably more reason, probably about 10 years ago, give or take, just in the natural progression of getting into new stuff. But a big reason why I picked Bowie is people would not be expecting me to come out here and talk about David Bowie. But uh, it wasn't even really a matter of maturing into Bowie as much as actually like getting through the stuff. Like There's still so much Bowie stuff I haven't actually gotten to because sure. there's so much to sift through. But I feel like I got enough that we can talk about it. Yeah, that's the thing. So part of the podcast and what I want to do with it is get guests on to talk about subjects that I am not, I'm, I haven't really, you know, been well-versed in. I know some Bowie, I mean, but I, in kind of discussing with you before we recorded, I said, okay, I know Station to Station, I own Diamond, Diamond Dogs is the only Bowie album I actually, I actually know. Um, so my, my knowledge of Bowie is fairly drive-by. I mean, I know some of the particulars, and I did a little bit of research before we did this, but to me, what's interesting about Bowie is he has always, in my mind, been an artist that for people of... I'm 34. Bo, how old are you? 35? Yeah, 35. Yeah, so we're basically the same generation. I, I, I feel like if you were born in the 80s and you weren't living in England where Bowie's from, it's it's not easy entry-level stuff, in part because his, his work is vast and deep and, and dipping in all sorts of genres, but... Obviously, he hit his peak in terms of cultural influence the decade before we were born, and you know Bowie wasn't beaten over the head with us in terms of most radio stuff. He's had some number one hits, but overall, to me, he seems like maybe the biggest international pop star that is the hardest guy to get into, generally speaking. Like, he's not as easily accessible as someone like you know Michael Jackson, who was who would be you know seen as a bigger star, so to speak, but. Overall, there's something of an intimidation slash curiosity factor with Bowie, and I think that's why some people don't really get into him. Like the people that are into Bowie, generally speaking, I know every fan base and artist Bo has a really hardcore fan base, but with Bowie, I really feel like so much of his fans, so many of them, are like all in. It's 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 hard to be a casual Bowie fan because he kind of hits on so many different you know colors and palettes. Yeah, well, see, the thing about Bowie is you got to be able to go with Bowie with whatever mood that he's had or whatever this is that he's into or whatever type of music that it is that he's chosen to interpret. Because the way I look at Bowie is this. 
uh, Bowie at his root and at his core is an amazing songwriter. Like, I think you have to evaluate Bowie as singer-songwriter before anything else. Because, I mean, who else is making the argument that a significant foundation of their songwriting is Nietzschean philosophy, right? Like, when you go through the records, like the early 70s ones, Ziggy and um, Hunky Dory in particular, are so heavy in Nietzsche. You even go back to um, Man Who Sold the World, because that one's got the Superman on it. Like, it's, it's such a basis of a lot of stuff that he did, and then you have the progression and everything that goes. There's these crazy, high-minded ideas. But at root is a singer-songwriter who you then take and is willing to be dropped off into all these different forms of music and almost basically doing performance art. Like the Plastic Soul stuff, I think you'd make the argument is performance art as much as anything else. Now, I've never been able to figure out on the Plastic Soul stuff, did he really believe that like the character they drew up is basically this white dude who's singing this soul music that he is unable to sing and therefore it has this plastic veneer to it. I always wonder if that spoke more to his insecurities about his ability to make the music that he actually wanted to make, right? Like whether that was actually it. But then like you listen to a track like Heroes and Heroes is absolutely performance art because the whole notion of Heroes is that there's this love that's present here that has no chance at long-term success. But we're going to try to do this and we're going to try to do it right now. And he's trying so hard the entire song to stay level. Like when you see performances of it, he's trying to keep this straight face, almost as though he's presenting an intellectual idea. Except that by the time it gets over, he's screaming because he just can't do it anymore. Like there's so much there with him as a character and as a persona that goes beyond simply the type of music that he happens to be doing at a point in time. I think a lot of what Bowie does in terms of his performance art is why some people might be resistant, even maybe even on a subconscious level, to embrace it because there was certainly that heavy element to it and a big time aesthetic to what Bowie was doing. I totally agree with you in terms of songwriting. Um, his ability to to craft here's the thing: his ability to craft songs, to tell stories in so many different ways is what it's what impresses me most. Because I I guess the way I would phrase it is this. I, in my opinion, the 1970s certainly was filled with Drek, as every music decade is, but it was the most important decade for popular music, in my opinion. People could easily argue the 60s. I would say the 70s because we saw more genres break out. And with Bowie, he was an artist at the forefront of that. People basically credit him for inventing the glam scene and, and glam rock. But within that decade alone, he was an artist who was... He was pretty intent on redefining his sound, redefining his image, challenging his fan base on two different continents to kind of explore dynamics within his songwriting. It, and I think in certain instances, and you kind of touched on this, it, it kind of took him to places that he might have even been unsure of. But now, decades later, I think, for, at least from a critical standpoint, the light shines pretty positively on him. Yeah, I think that there are three artists that stand taller from the 1970s than anybody else. And that is Stevie, yep, Bob Marley, and David Bowie. Like those are the three. Marley, you gotta remember all the Marley stuff is from the nineteen seventies. Like just right. about everything that you hear, the island, the island collection of stuff, that's all from the nineteen seventies, mm -hmm. except I want to say Uprising came out in nineteen eighty, but I'm, I mean I still consider that to be the nineteen seventies for this discussion. Those are the three that stand up. Now, the difference between Bowie and I'd say those other two catalogs in the seventies is the other two were a lot more consistent. Like Stevie just had the plant. Bo but Bowie was all over the place. Not all as good as others. Like, uh, I think Pinups is probably one that doesn't quite stand up as tall as the Berlin records do. They're not all as good as each as as the others. But the thing with Bowie is, so you start with Hunky Dory, and then that moves as a pretty seamless transition into Ziggy. And then you get to the rest of the stuff. And I think it points out what you kind of said about the 70s, is I think the 70s, allowed for a greater expansion of the forms of pop music than you had in any other decade because the 70s were far less dependent on three-minute songs done for the radio. Without a doubt. And when you look at some of Bowie's records from the 70s, and this was emblematic of so many, like I, there, there was a certain... Uh, process and artistic decision where his, some of his records are six or seven songs and it's a 36 minute record and I, I wish to, to a certain degree we had artists more willing to do, to be okay with putting down music and have it be 37 minutes long and we only need six songs and we only need eight songs. Steely Dan was another uh, group that did this frequently and not be so you know that obsessed with it's, it's interesting how 
50s into the 60s to a certain degree. Uh, you know, we were very single-oriented in terms of distributing music. Just lay it down, three minutes, ten seconds, get it out there. And now we see a lot of that today where it's very single-oriented. The album itself is not nearly as emphasized. And now, obviously, with streaming and Spotify and all that, and it's just, you know, just turn it out, make it make it three minutes long. If we can get some sort of dubstep, overdub, party mix to it, like, we'll do that. But the 70s were really... It was the most experimental area, and it was it was really the era where art really injected itself in so many different ways from how artists cared how their albums looked. You know, actually, I would think Diamond Dogs is one of the more famous album covers ever, just because of its, you know, it's 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 Bowie half man half dog basically. Um, so, and a lot of this I would credit to Bowie. It's and it makes me when you brought up Bowie to do on this podcast, I'm like, why am I not? Why am I not a bigger Bowie fan? Because I try, I really try, basically, if any artist of, of serious popularity over the past four or five decades, I really try to at least invest time and, and see, you know, why this band or this artist was successful. And it's not that he hasn't clicked with me. I just think there's been a subconscious barrier for me where I know he's gone into different genres. And yeah, I know, you know, I, I, I know some of the hits, you know, I know Let's Dance, I know... Man Who Sold the World is probably my favorite Bowie song, but I, you know, I, I don't know why I haven't been able to kind of break through. And, and maybe it's on behalf of the listener, but maybe it is also on behalf of Bowie, who, by the way, Bowie, and I know I'm rambling, is now been in kind of seclusion for like a decade. Like he hasn't performed since 2006. Word has it he has no intents on performing ever again live. He just wants to make studio records and do his art and and do that. So there's now he's now reached this point where it's, you know, the, the secluded genius, so to speak, in certain ways, it, at least in terms of music performance. Yeah, see, I think the performance thing almost kind of makes sense because he's a little bit more boring now than he used to That's be. That's also, like, he, he, like, yeah, yeah. He's got to turn into a boring family man. And I don't know, like, if you're Bowie, how do you go do David Bowie on stage at this point when we want you to then be about 15 different people, right? Like, mm-hmm. we want you to be Ziggy. We want you to be the Plastic Soul guy. We want you to be the guy strung out in Berlin because that's kind of what you have to be to do all these songs. Like, how... How are you that person? Keeping in mind that he was so strung out that he doesn't even remember that he did station to station. Yes. Like he can't remember anything about doing station to station. So like I can I can understand how it is that he would make the decision at this point that he didn't want to perform because it's hard to go back like into into that time. The thing about Bowie, I do think though, that getting in, it kind of depends on how much you respect the sheer audacity of it all. Like I like when I think about the people that I really, really, really like, I think about it. I like I I find that. And even though this kind of deviates from my own personal style, those androgynous cats, I tend to gravitate to them because the this the the audacity of sure. being like I love because back then, Bo, it was so it was like it was generally uh, and genuinely barrier pushing. Like it it was done in part for effect, I feel, but it was, there was also a layer of genuineness to it. Where now, I'm sorry, you know, Lady Gaga in a meat suit just isn't having that same effect, generally speaking. No, it's not doing it. And Bowie, like Bowie, Prince, I put Freddie Mercury on that same yes. list. It's the sheer audacity of your existence and of what you're doing. And that's part of it with Bowie, is that Bowie also, I would make the argument, and I think that this is one of those things that kind of gets lost sometimes. Like, you know it, but you don't think about it really as an intellectual concept, is... I read a book about uh, Van Morrison that said that the thing with Van was that that basically the job of the songwriter is to bridge the gap between the song and it's even the job of the singer is to bridge the gap between the song and the singer. So wherever the song is or wherever the singer is, how do you bring those two things into the same place? And what is amazing about Bowie is in the wide range of things that he sings, he sounds so dead ass sincere on every single one of them. Like there's never a point where you're listening to Bowie and you're thinking about it in a way where it's like, yo, man, like, you know, it sounds like he's singing somebody else's song. They're all his songs. They're all there. And I think that when you listen to it and just get lost in the fact that he's so absolutely dead on sold into whatever concept it is that he's trying to explore at a given point in time, everything else there picks up. Then the other part with Bowie is, and this is something I've kind of taken in my own life. There are very few people who have egos the size of Bowie's and who have talent in the amounts that Bowie has talent, who were so willing to work with other really, really, really talented people. Like his willingness to collaborate okay. and the people with whom he has collaborated and the and the imprints that they've had on the on his sound. When you really stop and think about that, it's pretty amazing. So like, hey, Stevie Ray Vaughan, why don't you come on here and play all Which this is dance? One of my favorite facts ever. That was he literally saw Stevie Ray Vaughan play 
in Sweden. I can't remember where it was. But he Bowie essentially discovered Stevie Ray Vaughan, said, "Come play on this record," and then that and that's that was how Stevie Ray really broke through. I think he was so good he would have done it anyway. But I'm a huge Stevie Ray Vaughan fan. Sorry to interrupt you there. That that's been that's one of the more amazing music facts that I like in general. But then the next level of it is it gets forgotten about that album is that it was produced by Nile Rodgers <laughs> and how it winds up being produced by Nile Rodgers is that Bowie had been working on that record with what is that dude's name? Oh, with uh, with uh, Tony Visconti, who he'd done all this work with before, right? The last two last four studio albums that were produced by him. He's working with Nile Rodgers and he's like, you know what? I'm going to do this with Nile Rodgers. And then he and Viscotti, I don't think, spoke for 20 years or didn't work together for like mm. another 20 years because he's like, this is the guy that I want to collaborate with. So it is. I have always been really, really impressed by his willingness to have all these different people, like the Carlos Alomar stuff. When you think about it, Carlos Alomar used to play with James Brown. And there's a James Brown song. I think it's called Hot, Hot, Hot. And I listen to it, and it's basically fame. Like, that's the song. Mm. It's fame. And I listen to it, and I'm like, Damn, man, David Bowie stayed for, stole from James Brown. I never figured David Bowie would be continuing a long track record of the white man stealing from the black man. And then I find out, actually, no, James Brown had stolen from Bowie. Um, Bowie had done fame first, and the James Brown song comes after. Uh-huh. Now, how many how many people out there? Now, Alomar plays on both, but even still, how many people are out here saying, yeah, James Brown ripped me off? Right. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Hey, by the way, in researching this, uh, he basically helped Luther Vandross break in because yep. Vandross sings backup on Young Americans, which is an album I'm not, I should be more familiar with than I am. But it's kind of crazy. I think you make a good point. Uh, collaborations in terms of the talent and aspiration. And Bowie, by the way, was a guy who basically from being a young teenager was dead set on being a pop star. This was something that he wanted to do. You know, he's, he's sold about 140 million records, you know, 50 years later. But there is something to that. He did not, sometimes mus- musicians and bands, they can they can fall into fame and not expect it, or they might be aspiring to it and goes way beyond what they ever thought they'd be. But with Bowie, from all I can tell, this was something that he was dead set on doing. He ditched a band in his early years because they simply weren't talented or driven enough to what he wanted to be. And so this was certainly no accident for him to to get to the point where he wanted to get it. And I guess that's where I would respect Bowie most is that he knew what he wanted to do and then he never he never settled. And when it comes to artists that can really hit a level of success and not have any sort of stagnation internally and just in terms of what they want to accomplish, Bowie is is up there with anyone else. He is, and also manages to sneak stuff in on you, like in the course of doing it. Like Hunky Dory, I was talking to a guy named Aaron Bronstetter that I used to work with in Canada, and he's a really big music guy, and he's talking about Hunky Dory, and he said, I didn't get Hunky Dory until I had kids. He said, once he had a kid, he realized Hunky Dory is all about fatherhood. Like, if you go back and look, and I think Hunky Dory is the best Bowie record of them all. If you go back and listen to Hunky Dory, it really is about fatherhood. Like, that is a love letter from him to his son. Like, Kooks is an explicit statement of that fact. But you go through and you listen to what the themes are and the things that he's talking about there. That's a record about fatherhood. It also happens to be a glam slash folk rock record. Like, who the hell's doing that? And that's 1971. Like, that's when this takes off, is 1971. And then it winds up going into all these odd and different places by the time that you wind up being finished. And you're right. It takes a certain level of ambition and belief in self to have these really well-thought-out concepts, even though the cocaine seems to have kind of, you know, made him waver a little bit at different points in it. But there's also a volume of work. The sheer volume of how much work he put out in the 1970s. I mean, we're looking at an album a year for 10 years. Which is even impressive for that era, by the way. I mean, you know, Stevie had a had certainly a classic period, and there were a lot of artists. You know, Zeppelin might have gone six straight years, maybe, but for him to go ten straight years, album a year, speaks to a work ethic. Because you know, there was still and think about what it meant to to tour and to travel and to record in the '70s compared to how relatively easy it would be for artists to do that today. And that's it's you know that that process is, does not remotely exist anymore. Yeah, and it's also like in line with Prince in the sense that Prince put one out in 1980, one in 81, he put one in 82. He would have put Purple Rain out probably in 83, except there was a movie there, right? So it's sure. 84, 85, 86, 87. I think Love Sex is either 88 or 89. Like he had a similar run through there. And what the two of them had is not just that they had those runs, it's that all these records are different. Like it doesn't sound like I just did 35 records in a week. And then, you know, we just put them out gradually as it went out. 
they're all clear changes. So and the changes that are being made by the artists are changes that are being made without having any idea of what the sales of these first records are going to be. Right. So Prince did 1999. Purple Rain has some things that sound like 1999. But by the time you're working on Purple Rain, for you to make the decision, I'm going to do something else. Imagine being at the record label like but Prince 1999 has sold three million copies already. You sure you don't want to stick around and do more 1999? I've moved on. Yeah, that's basically Bowie. Like at all these steps, hunky dory into the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. Like th Those are giant movements going to Aladdin saying Aladdin saying after that. Those are different movements. They're completely different things. So you have to have a certain level of confidence to me to make that decision that no matter how this record I just did performed, I'm personally ready to go do something else. And when I go back to how I first really, in the minimal ways that I approached in, in Bowie's music and output, what I actually always thought, like in, when I was 15 years old and I didn't know anything about music, and you would have told me David Bowie, I would have thought, yeah, that's, a, that's like, a, like a punk rocker kind of thing. And he wasn't, but the interesting thing about Bowie, in my opinion, was in, in the midst of the 70s, as he's creating all these records and the sound is changing, I think of some of what the punk ethos is about kind of owes a debt to what Bowie was doing. Cause there was certainly, you know, it's not just counterculture and just grand statements like that, but the songwriting Bowie was doing was beyond what punk was capable of achieving and not what punk was after. But would you agree that some of what punk was becoming and you can kind of blend new wavy stuff in there? Cause definitely new wave without a doubt. I mean, that that's kind of goes without saying, but would you say a little bit of, of punk's birth owes a debt to Bowie? Well, I think you'd also have to point to the work, the, the Bowie and Iggy Pop stuff, right? There's kind of a bi-directional sort of yeah. thing when you like when you go into that direction. But I would like the same way, like Prince and Rick James are kind of offshoots of that punk movement. When you think about what their aesthetic was, like you have to remember, if you go watch, uh, Prince was on Saturday Night Live, I want to say 1980 or 1981. He was doing songs off Dirty Mind, and you see him there, and he's in a trench coat and a g-string and heels. Like, really? That's what he's wearing. Yeah, that's what he's wearing. And the band is up there with them, but it's like decidedly masculine, right? Because punk in a lot of ways is a decidedly masculine turn yes. to punk, that anger and that sort of rage that's there. But more importantly, punk is a rejection of the established paradigm. And so with Bowie, I don't think it was necessarily an explicit rejection of the established paradigm, but it was a refusal just to fall in line on it. Because there's nothing I think that when you listen to Bowie, even when Bowie is shamelessly borrowing from outside of his lane, right? And I say borrowing because I don't feel like it's stealing when you're so transparently saying, hey, I want to come do this and I want to work with you. Help me achieve that sound. Like, that's that's the way that he has done this. Like, I am a songwriter and I can take these songs and I can put them into your type of music and then we'll figure out how to make something that happens, right? Like, he's there. He did all of those things. But it was, it was never just in lockstep with what the notion of pop music was at a given point in time. And I think that that's where I would associate it with punk, except almost in a way where you could say that it's almost broader and more daring than punk because punk was going out of its way to say, we're not this anymore. And Bowie's saying, I'm doing this. It really didn't have that much to do with these other guys. Uh, and by the way, just a quick side fact that I discovered. Do you realize that... Bowie, so all this stuff in 1970 was groundbreaking and everything. I did not realize this because I have no memory of it. But in 96, Bowie had a single called Telling Lies. And he was basically the first ever artist, or at least mainstream artist, to offer a song downloadable by the internet. Which I did is, not know that. Which is kind of like, listen, it's a small, tiny note, you know, that won't even make his obituary, I'm sure, but it's just, it's just stuff like that, and this is, that's 96 Bowie, which is, you know, a solid decade after he was at his most important, you know, critical and, and popular peak, and yet, even in the 90s, when his output was not as strong, and he was becoming, you know, normcore Bowie, if you will, he's still kind of doing stuff like that. To me, it's kind of, it's kind of intriguing uh, that he was still finding certain ways to kind of break grounds, you know, 10, 15 years after. Um, oh, or even like if you think about the Tim Machine record in 89, I never listened to the second Tim Machine record, but the Tim Machine record is really good. Like you go listen to it. And I mean, it's still it's very it's still very Bowie. Like that's one thing also, though, about Bowie is with all these different things he tried to do. The production is still going to be pretty slick to you. There was definitely an effort made to make the work be accessible. But the idea that he's doing less dance in 83 and Tim Machine in 89 and neither of them is more convincing than the other. Right. Because like let's dance kind of out of his lane in a lot of ways too. like the title track in particular. Like, I mean. 
that's not plastic soul. Like he's like, I'm in this now. I'm actually doing this. Yeah. Tin Machine kind of goes the same way. Those are drastically different records. Drastically different records. But like I say, he's as convincing on one as he is on the other. All right, top eight or ten records. For anyone listening that's a diehard Bowie fan, that you're going to have your own strong opinion. But if people are just generally intrigued and they want to know, you know, what are some of the stuff that you enjoy and might be the most embraceable, let's let's give a countdown of sorts with a little bit of a one-liner or two-liners from your perspective. What would, what would you recommend and what are your favorites here? All right, now I'm not going to pretend. I came up with this list of ten and I kind of did it in the way of someone who has been charged to write these things for a publication, which is to say it might not be the exact order of my ten, but this makes it more compelling. Right? Okay. So, number ten I put down the next day. And if you're not familiar with the next day, the next day came out in 2013 when we all woke up one day and yeah. boom! Guess what? There's a David Bowie record. And guess what? It was really, really good. Now, it wasn't a groundbreaking record, but if you go listen to that and say and understand that Bowie could put that out in 2013, it's the kind of thing to make you understand why some of us are really serious about this Bowie thing. So, number nine, I put the Tim Machine record just because I think it's interesting. Like, I don't think it's necessarily that great, but I think it's interesting and I think it's accessible and it's hard. Like, it's not a soft record. It's 80s hard rock that is not metal. So, you know, there is an edginess that isn't quite there because of the production of the time. But worth checking out. Okay. Number eight, I say Let's Dance. And really, I mean, Nile Rodgers, and if you're not familiar with Nile, Nile Rodgers is the guitar player for Chic. He's a... Who got, who got, by the way, who auditioned for Bowie in the 70s and was told no. Yeah, so like think about how good the guitar player had and, to be if Nile Rodgers. And here, and right? kind of speaks to Bowie's uh, general influence. I mean, <laughs> that's another crazy fact with Bowie. But continue. Yeah, but it's a fun, it's a funk record in a lot of ways. But it really is as close to just straight ahead pop as you're going to get to Bowie from Bowie. And it does move. And Modern Love is one of the best uh, Starcher album tracks ever made. Like you're starting off with Chi- with Modern Love, China Girl, and Let's Dance. That's your first three. Okay, cool. That That's how you sell 10 million records, is have your first three songs be that, and you go. So okay. I got that at number eight. Number seven, I am going with Live at Santa Monica. Um, I was not going to put a studio album in here, but I feel like you need to have a live album when you have a discussion like this. And the Moon Age Daydream of Live at Santa Monica is as good as anything that he had done. But go listen to it, and you also that's another one that gives you an understanding, a feeling about why this... The pop, the the punk aesthetic that you talk about from Bowie is there because then that's 1972. I want to say when you recorded that, this is still new. This is still fresh. This is still stuff like the guy just came and told the world I'm an alien and I'm pretending to be an alien for the right. next two years. Right, yeah. and like this is the concert from it, and it's Mick Ronson on guitar. It is live, so I say check that Mick one Ronson, out. Ronson, by the way, one of the better guitarists of all time. Yes, yes, like that's what we're saying about Bowie. Every time Bowie showing up with somebody, he's really, really good. Like his ego is never getting in the way of the quality of the work. Yeah. Um, six, five, and four. I have Low Lodger and Heroes. You can put them in any order that you really want to. That's the Berlin. That's the Berlin era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and just, what is the for those who might not be familiar that Berlin era? What is what is that? Uh, what is that sound? And how is it different from what came before? Ooh, it's kind of difficult to explain the sound. Like I find the sound to be a lot more melodic than the stuff that he was doing before, and it kind of floats in a different way. Um, like it almost, in ways, feels Turkish at times. Like there's almost like a Middle Eastern influence there when you listen to it. But it has moments that are harder than others, certainly. But it's a bit more electronic. Like don't think of electronic in the modern electronic terms. But it just kind of goes. The key thing to understand is these are three records made by a man who is trying to detox from heroin. And if I'm not mistaken, that's around the time he fell in love with Iggy Pop. And when I say fell in love with Iggy Pop, I don't mean fell in love with Iggy Pop's music. I mean fell in love with Iggy Pop. But uh, Heroes is probably one of the 10 greatest love songs anybody has ever done. It is as compelling and interesting and thoughtful a love song as you'll have in the sense that it's not actually a love song. It's like a song in, in denial of love and then all of a sudden it comes and you can't do anything about it so i put those at six five four because i think it's very difficult to separate either of those records from the other okay uh now three i have the rise and fall of ziggy stardust and the spiders of mars from mars and i think you know famously the rock opera about a messianic alien who comes to save the world the thing i would say about ziggy stardust is this Listen to the first three tracks. Like You can get to the, the others, and they're there, and there's covers, and there's really interesting stuff, and you get to the title track that most people know, and you get to Suffragette City and Rock and Roll Suicide. But 
The first track is five years, where he's laying out like the concept of the opera. The first track, there's we got five years until the world ends. You got Soul Love next, mm-hmm. which is basically like a, you know at a church, like the sermon of what we're going for. And the third track, I convinced that Moon Age Daydream, terrific no song, yeah, and no one's ever had more pressure to make a song better than Moon Age Daydream. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is that's the song that basically is Ziggy establishing that he is the Messiah and the man to be followed. So think about this: you're putting together an album. This track, what do you need this track to do? Nothing major, just convince people that you're Jesus. Like, that's what you have to be able to do. You have to be able to not just convince people, like, lyrically that you're Jesus, but it has to sound so damn good that by the time it's over, you're like, holy, that, like, that's the Messiah Terrific right song. there. That's the, and he that's, did it. Yeah, for, for as little as I'm well-versed in Bowie, that's the song when I actually listen to the record that... You know, sometimes you listen to a record for the first time, or whatever, and a song will kind of make you stop, like everything, and just completely hone in and focus on the song. That that's the song that did it to me some years back. It's it's it's, it's a audacity. gorgeous, terrific song. And it's the audacity, the first line. Yes. You get that guitar riff, and it's I'm an alligator, I'm a mama papa coming for you, I'm a space invader, I'll be a rock and roll and bitch for you. So yes, I'm Jesus and I'm a bitch at the same exact time. <laughs> And it works like that. Like, and then from then on, it's just like, okay, nothing else on this album really matters, right? Like, you have just told me you were Jesus, and I believe you. Yeah. So I got guitar work it. on "Stay." By the way, is really good. I, I yes. do. I think that's a uh, worth noting on there. Uh, so you've got that at three, correct? Yeah. That's okay. and you, you mentioned "Stay." Very good timing because that gets us to station to sta- station to station at number two. And station to station, unfortunately, he doesn't remember because he was so strung Which is out. Crazy. It's uh, nuts. I mean, I, I like nothing. It's listen. It's it's a record that re- really, um, I would highly, I would highly recommend. To me, it's I don't know, maybe the stay or station to station or Diamond Dogs. I don't know which is the better primer record, but uh, station to station, I, I would recommend. Again, just six songs on the whole album, and stays stay is the one that stands out for me because I just I think the guitar work and the tone as as kind of a guitar wonk it's it's my favorite track on the yeah, record. Yeah, stay in wild as the wind is about as good as you're gonna have for twelve minutes to close out your record. Like it's it's really really that good. And that's Alamar. What's my man's name? Um, Adrian Adrian Ballou. That I think people are really famous for a lot of those live performances there. But Carlos Alamar played guitar on that one, and Alamar played like I mentioned earlier played a lot of stuff with James Brown and stuff like that. So I would I would say you could make an argument that Station to Station is kind of as close to being the midpoint of a lot of the Bowie work as you're going to get. Like I I don't know if this is considered to be in this pla- in the plastic soul theme. I'm not good at breaking down my epics of David Bowie, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. But it isn't plastic. Like it, it's it's kind of like it wraps all of that stuff and it's moving you into the Berlin stuff. But I think when you hear it, there's nothing plastic about that one. So that's what I've got at number two. And number one, I have Hunky Dory. And Adam Durris explained this best. He was like, look. At one point, there was folk rock. And then at the same time, there was this building of glam rock. And then comes Bowie, who decides, I'm just going to jam them all together into one thing. And it's cohesive. And like I say, it's basically a song about fatherhood. It's like it's a discussion of a man that a man is having with his son, except the man is every bit as immature and childish as that son is. It's like trying to reconcile this notion of becoming a man with the idea that you have to be a man for this boy because you can't ha- y'all both can't be boys in the same house. Somebody's got to be the man in there. And so once you have that, it's not as hard as the other stuff. And I think that when you listen to it now, it's kind of hard to think about it as being daring as anything else that he had put out. But considering that that was 1971 when that album came out, I think 1971 is when you're getting Led Zeppelin three. Like, just think, you know, think about the difference in sound of what you're getting from him and where it is and all over the place. And it's kind of, in a lot of ways to me, the expansion of where AM radio was going to take rock, because this is in a lot of ways to me, a Sergeant Pepper sort of record that expanded the possibilities of what the music were, except unlike Sergeant Pepper, which I think just blew all the established paradigms that had been there before. Bowie is somehow working within them while destroying them, but leaving them intact for somebody else to do something with them. That's well noted. And by the way, by 73, Bowie had six albums that were charting at the same time. I don't know how many other artists or bands Beatles would have to be in there. Um, I don't even know if Stevie would have done it with six at the same time. Six is tough. That's it's just it's kind of incredible because uh, one you gotta you gotta do the work you gotta put you gotta put out that much and then it's gonna be that good 
And I think there's just an element to Bowie that I'll never be able to truly interpret. Like, I can listen to Zeppelin, and I can listen to the Beatles, and I can read about it, and I can really get a firm grasp on what their overall presence and and arrival and and consistent output meant in that kind of time, even if I can't truly tangibly uh, feel it the way I could feel, you know, hip-hop's emergence in in the late 80s and into the early 90s and whatnot. But with Bowie, I think there's just... There's something out of my reach. It's 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 fuzzy that I can't that I'll never be able to fully put my arms around, but still will be able to enjoy the music. I think what what transfers to that, or the best thing that could transfer to that, is the artist that he influenced. I, the the famous saying is what is something like the Velvet Underground's biggest fans like all went into music or whatever. Yeah, I'm they, botching they, 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 it. Yeah, I, I would like say they sold, they sold thirty they, they sold yeah. thirty copies of the album, but all those people. Uh, waited, yeah, whatever so was, whatever it is exactly. Paid. So I would argue that Bowie, you could say in more you know appreciative terms, I think Bowie is more responsible for more uh, genres, subgenres, offshoots, and and artists becoming successful than than even Velvet Underground. I would say if you're if you're going to Bowie, Velvet Underground would be and Lou Reed would kind of would fall under him as opposed to vice versa and then I would like talking heads. I would even say, you know, Dylan came first, but I'm saying if you're if you're into Dylan or Talking Heads, Velvet Underground, Rolling Stones for sure, even stuff like Duran Duran, T Rex, these are all artists and bands that if you like any of those, or even modern stuff like The Killers and there's a really yeah. good glam band out of Cincinnati that I'm huge on called Foxy's Shazam. If you're into any of that stuff and you haven't gotten into Bowie, if you do, you're going to see the and hear the connections. And that's why I think, you know, you can enter into avenues that way. And, and you know, again, there's the back and forth between Lou Reed and Bowie, where I feel like the good thing about Bowie is, unlike Lou Reed, you don't have to be, like, bummed out and miserable to truly appreciate where he's coming from. Like, I find that all my friends who really love Lou Reed, they're all miserable people. Yeah. Like, I just wish they could be happier. Like, if, if you turn on Lou Reed and you're like, yo, it's got, I mean, the Beach Boys aren't that far off on that either. Like, if you turn on a Brian Wilson song and you're like, yo, he's speaking my life, fix your fucking life. <laughs> like that, like that's the direction that you need to change. You don't need to go listen to more Lou Reed. You need to listen to less of it. You need to go do something a little shinier with your life. But like you go listen to the Transformer record, and I mean, it, it's a, it, it sounds very much so like a Bowie record. It's just you know a Lou Reed Bowie record. So like, and there's, Bowie there's, again, Bowie's on it for people that might not be aware of that. Right? Yeah, yeah, he produced he produced that. One. Okay, he produced. I thought he had vocals on it, but maybe. Yeah, not. you might be right there. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm bad on those particulars, but okay. I can like, but I can say though. That with Bowie, the the compelling part there that I think is takes you also there with Lou Reed is Lou Reed does have an a unmistakable sincerity to what he's doing. Like I can listen to just about anybody in the music they make if I believe them, right? Like I hate Axl Rose as human, but when he sings, I believe it, and so I can ride it out because he's just that convincing when he does what he's doing. Bowie, like if you compare. Um, his cover of It's So Hard to Be a Saint in the City with the Springsteen original. And the Springsteen original sounds like early 70s, 19, early 70s Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I don't say that in a bad way necessarily. Like, it's not like fun, like, it's not like the fun 70s optimistic Springsteen like you get on a track like Rosalita, but it is very much so a, you know, a, a gritty Springsteen sort of song about people talking to hookers on the street and everything like that. Bowie's cover is all is a lot more electric out. It's a lot looser. And then you hear Bowie sing it, and you're like, the biggest thing that he's contributing to this is that he's David Bowie. Like, it just sounds like it's David Bowie. It's the audacity of David Bowie. It's everything that you need that nobody else exists in this space but him. And, like, Prince had that quality, too, where you listen to a Prince record, and it, like, takes you off into this world with a completely different ethos and thought process and what's right and wrong and what people do or don't do makes perfect sense, but it's according to, like, a set of mores that you just don't have in regular life. Like, it's a place that you want to go. Bowie seems to do that on all those tracks. Also, like, whenever you listen to him, you're not going to find songs that are about your life. You're going to have, you're going to find yourself. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. You're going to find yourself taken to a place that has songs that do sound like your life, you know, but you're not going to be like, man, David Bowie's singing my life because nobody else can be David Bowie. I, you know what? And maybe that's at the the central issue of some of what I, what I mentioned in people that might not be drawn to Bowie's music is a lot of people want to listen to music that makes them inherently feel something strong. And, and some of the best music, it doesn't really matter what you're singing about. There's there's an element to 
to the music itself that's going to overcome that. But with Bowie, I think you're right. I think the fact that <laughs> I never thought about it that way, man, but it's true. I, you do not listen to Bowie for self-identification in any sort of relation to the artist. It is, <laughs> it is, it is hop in the backseat because I'm going to take you to the outer limits of our universe and you're going to enjoy the damn ride. Right, exactly. Marvel and what is going on. Unless maybe you listen to Moon Age Daydream and you're like, damn it, somebody else is the alien messiah too? I thought it was just me, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you're just going to have to ride along with wherever in the world it is that he decides to take you. And that can be so exhilarating. And as a listener, like as a casual listener, that can be a lot. But if you're somebody who's just like really, really into music, it's something really different about appreciating a person that is not trying to push you away because he's absolutely giving it to you for you to see it. But it's not for you to feel like I'm that like I'm that guy. It's for you to be like, look at what the hell is on stage right now. What is he wearing? Yeah. By the way, um, you mentioned Bruce. We've talked Prince and what those two and Bowie have in common and this is a, a relatively small fraternity. It's it's just a small side bragging right is to be this, you know, all time rock and roll hall of fame artist. And by the way, you just have hits that you've written for other people. Like, I don't need this. You can go ahead and take it and it can essentially make your career. So Bowie wrote All the Young Dudes, which was made famous by Mott the Hoople. And so I I always find that interesting where there's just there's a few artists that aren't so attached to certain music or they just they just like, here, just take it. Take Blinded yeah. by the Light. I don't need it. My career doesn't need it. That aspect to it is kind of crazy to me because there's not really any other kind of professional arena where this would happen, where you would commit yourself to some sort of work and then just pawn it off on someone else and just say, no, it's yours. That's fine. Yeah, you know, all the young dudes are supposed to be on Ziggy. At least that's what he says, because it's very difficult to trust any David Bowie recollection of these cocaine fuel <laughs> periods, right? But he's like, that was supposed to be a fit into the arc of Ziggy, and it just didn't fit. Like, sonically, if you listen to his version of all the young dudes, it doesn't fit with what they were doing with Ziggy necessarily, at least not in the place that he wanted to put it. So, yeah, somebody else can have it. Yeah, you're good. Like, to be able to write songs with that output, or just for for Bowie to me, the fact that he can write songs that are so dense intellectually but still be, like, poppy and catchy, that's really, 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 really hard to do. Like, Dylan couldn't do that. All Dylan could give you is these dense songs. Like, there aren't, there just aren't really catchy Dylan songs. Right. Bowie could give you the catchy ones. Yeah, and, and Dylan's catchiest song is the harmonica line in like a rolling stone it's like that's that's the catchiest aspect of that song you had mentioned you'd put bowie alongside of marley and uh stevie i'm i have not been able to i can't really look up i'm trying to think off the top of my head if we created a top five who would it be in the 70s individual artists Elton John, I would think, has got to be in there, right? Yeah, Elton John. I would say Elton John is up there. I don't uh, know if I can go Billy Joel because he he kind of nah, went into no, the eighties and we will not. We will not. <laughs> okay. I will answer that question for you. We will fucking not. I know. I'm just uh, we're on. We're I. I mentioned John, so I, the brain left brain goes Elton John, right brain goes Billy Joel. Oh yeah. I'm just trying to think of an individual artist. From well, the seventies, Curtis, May- Curtis Mayfield had a hell of a run in the nineteen seventies. Also, he... Al- Curtis Mayfield and Al Green both, at least until uh, the grits, I, and he put yeah. out some good stuff after the grits too. But the grits really kind of messed up his positive yeah. moment. Marvin Gaye is kind of a crossover into the eighties, so I don't think we could necessarily. Well, say- I don't know because we're starting at seventy one. Like the only thing that Marvin really did in the eighties that we really need to talk about is like sexual healing. But in the in the seventies, we got what's going on. We got let's get it on. I want you yeah. here, my dear, which I think is a bit overrated, but it's still there. Um, the Trouble Man sound track like he's in there and then you get like like we start getting to bands of course we're having a yeah well that's that's a that's a whole different thing i'm just thinking solo artists and i'm trying to just well dylan also had a hell of a run dylan is yeah but he he did he he absolutely did but i i can't i can't say dylan would be in there because he was he loomed so much larger in the 60s than the 70s and the 70s was a little more inconsistent even though the 70s produced my favorite dylan record blood on the tracks Oh, there's also there's also Paul Simon. Who I was going to say Simon. Exactly. Simon was huge. And Simon, actually, uh, my favorite Paul Simon nugget ever is that he won for record of the year and thanked Stevie Wonder for not making an album. Because Stevie, yeah. <laughs> it's just one he of those won, things. Because Stevie, did, I think he did Interventions in 73 and won for it. He did Fulfilling his first finale in 74 and won for it. And it's still crazy after all these years is the 
Simon record, I think, that pops up in the time continuum. And it was a good idea for him because the next year, Saws in the Key of Life came out, and then Stevie won for that. Insane. You're probably right with, with uh, yeah, that, that fifth spot is kind of tough. Your top three are definitely on the money. The Marley thing, you know, I might not have thought about that off the top of my head, but it's definitely... It's definitely true. The legacy of Marley to this day has actually kind of gotten dumbed down. Is not the right word, but I think people don't really realize what early Marley was. I mean, everyone knows the same nine songs in general. But... It's a legend, man. Legend did all the damage. Um, <laughs> it really like did. once and legend. The thing you have to understand is that legend was done with that intention. There's been a great deal of work done by the Jamaican government and in part by Chris Blackwell. I would argue on Blackwell. It's been found in documents with the Jamaican government to try to soften Marley and to try to make Marley more basically, hey, you like to get high in college. Hey, listen to Bob Marley. Hey, this is your sure. get high guy. Marley is, first of all, he's the most popular, and this doesn't seem like a big deal, but he was probably in in, in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. Bob Marley is such an amazing figure there because of the songs of liberation and how they fit in to that particular time period. Like he was the most famous black man in the world after Muhammad Ali in the 1970s. And by the end, and this is, I think, the most interesting thing about Marley, in the end, as the technology changed in making music, his sound got shinier, it got poppier, dare I say, the horns are even a bit punchy, and the music is as incendiary and fiery as anything that he had ever done. And I can't name anybody that was going in to be 36, 37 years old that was still as fiery as he was in the beginning. Like, even if you don't think that this was as good as, you know, that Uprising mm. is as good as Catch a Fire, it is from the same place. Like, it's from the same grounding of fury. And very few people are still doing that at the age that he had reached. That's a good point. So, kind of speaking more broadly here, I would, I would say... If we're going to put Marley and Bowie top three in the 70s, then they've got to be among the top 10 most important individual artists of all time. Are we going to go that far? Because I think I would, we, go. I would go that far based simply because and I would I could apply this to sports in that, you know, if you were among the top two or three athletes of a certain sport in a certain generation, then it doesn't matter if there are only you know three or four amazing ones or whatever. If, if you dominated at a time when they were the best, think about, you know, you know, Nicholas and and who he went against in golf and all that stuff or whatever. It, it helps your case as opposed to dominating at a time when you just didn't have a lot of competition. So it, to me, the 70s is the most important musical decade. And if we're going to say Bowie was clearly top three, then he's got to be among the top 10 biggest individual artists ever. But I would argue, Bamani, that that's not, you know, an unspoken consensus. I, I feel like his legacy kind of deserves that, but it's not quite there overall I, I you know i don't know i think there's something to that right like i think that for most people when they have these discussions that you put you have like a beetle stones one and two right like that's kind of where you start like in this overall sort of thing and then you figure out what to do with a guy like chuck berry who i would say like chuck berry and james brown are more hey, important than anybody else they're right? they're i i did a i did a guitar heroes podcast with jay busby and i absolutely barry is kind of criminally underrated for what he did for guitar and music. For every, I mean, the rock and roll song is a Chuck Berry song. Yes. Like every, like everything, four on the floor, the, the, everything about it, the songwriting and the fact that you understood every word when he sang, which is a greatly underrated thing. Like him as a singer, the, the brilliance of Chuck Berry really is the songwriting. Like the guitar stuff comes with it. The brilliance truly is the songwriting, but the template of what a rock and roll song is, is Chuck Berry. Just like James Brown, who, James Brown is integral in moving from gospel into soul and then integral in moving soul into funk. Like very few people can stick around to be at the vanguard, legitimately at the vanguard of two significant musical movements. Like funk, playing on the one is James Brown. Like James Brown made the decision we're going to play on the one and people have been playing on the one ever since, right? Like those are the guys that you have up there. Then after that, you start filling it in differently because what influence means is something different where we get past the foundational sort of figures. And now we start talking about just like, what are you adding to the larger aesthetic? And I think with Bowie, what is what was then added to the larger aesthetic is the fact that you can add whatever the hell you want into the larger aesthetic. Just as long as you follow a few basic rules that make it possible for people to like clap your hands to clap their hands to your songs. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, in this discussion of individual artists, I see I would, 
you know, it's called a cop-out, but I wouldn't include McCartney and Lennon because I would say, no, just put them in the Beatles category. Because yes. if you don't, then clearly both of those guys would, would crack the top 10, but then it, it kind of dilates the, dilutes the pool overall. But, and they weren't as good without each other. Like, that's that, the thing. That is they true. They each other more than they knew. Actually, so uh, so Lennon or McCartney, though, which one? And don't cop-out and say Harrison. If you Lennon or McCartney. Yeah, no, there's no copping out, because I would say Harrison, too, but pick one of the two. So Lennon or McCartney. It's so tricky for me, though, because I love their their model of, and I think I heard I read Lennon described it this way, where McCartney gives you the big, major, overarching point, and then Lennon comes in with the moral of the story, right? Like, he's the guy that gives you, like, the pointed, personal, um, like, the, the I don't want to say the introspection of what it is, but, like, okay, this is what Paul's been saying in fluffy terms. Let me make it very simple for you, right? Um, I would then go with Lennon because I kind of have a personal gravitation toward guys who think like that. That being said, I think objectively speaking, if I'm not talking about personal preference, objectively speaking, I think you go with McCartney because it isn't easy coming up with those melodies and those catchy tunes like Insane. he did. Insane. Best, best pure pop songwriter ever, in my opinion. Yeah, it, I think it, you're right. And it's just, it's it's unreal. And this is really a podcast into a, in of itself. But also, you know... There is certainly a, a case to be made that with McCartney and Helter Skelter and a genre that he birthed alone with that song. I mean, it's kind of insane what both of those guys did. And Lennon, I feel, is kind of rightfully, for so long, he had so many devotees. And I think the way he died and kind of helped his legacy to a certain extent, which ha happens with a lot of musicians. But I think there's a broader perspective coming back with Lennon in terms of just he's getting knocked down just a little bit. Because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the great savior of rock and roll and peace and all that stuff. Like, the guy had his, a slew of personal issues in general as well, which are separate from preferring his music and, and his approach in general. But overall... Uh, but, they, but, but they do kind of come together. I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to see you with another man. His issues aren't really, like... <laughs> Fair point. But they're just so catchy. You know, like, see, by the time you're done, you're like, yo, wait a minute, man. That shit was crazy. Yeah. Like, that, was, that was insane, John Lennon. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, this was uh, really, really fun. Enjoyed it tremendously. We'll have you back on to talk. I mean, there are there are so many things that I know that you're able to just pontificate on forever and ever and ever. Uh, at follow him on Twitter. He's a he's a heavy follow. I, I got to admit, I just about once a week, I'll just click on the feed and be like, all right, what clowns is Bomani? Because, <laughs> dude, you're just you're just a, an, an open an open flow of dialogue but it's at bomani underscore jones you can watch him of course on around the horn and co-host of highly questionable on espn and thanks for coming on man we'll do this again uh different artist or topic at some point but i appreciate it so much man thank you hey dude no problem man thanks so much for having me